Hey folks, this is Justin Angle. Earlier this week, Montana lost an institution, political journalist Chuck Johnson. To honor his memory, we're rebroadcasting my conversation with Chuck from 2021. We all miss him and hope you enjoy hearing his voice. This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back. I'm joined today by legendary Montana political journalist, Chuck Johnson. So what the current Montana values are, I don't know. I think people want a good future for their young people, but a lot of the young people head off to Seattle and Portland and Denver. So I don't, I don't, that's a really good question. What are the values we, we value in Montana? And I don't know. During Chuck's 45 plus year reporting career, he covered 22 Montana legislative sessions and eight governors. Known by his colleagues as the Dean of Montana Politics, Chuck gave Montanans line of sight to many of our state's most transformational political moments. Chuck, thanks for being here today. Happy to do it, Justin. So where did you grow up and what did your parents do? I grew up in Helena. My dad was an insurance underwriter, property and casualty underwriter. My mom was a homemaker who uh, later went to work as an accountant for a furniture store help uh, put us kids to college. Yeah, and so he came here to study journalism. What, at what stage did you decide that journalism was going to be what you wanted to study and what you wanted to do with your career? Well, I didn't really know what I wanted to major in, and my dad pitched business, which he majored in. Mm-hmm. I was probably the shortest business major ever. I took one accounting <laughs> course and dropped out. Uh, so it was in college, and uh, I actually wanted to be a sports writer originally. And then I did that. I was the sports editor of the Kymene for a year. And then I decided I really wanted to, you know, cover what was going on in the, in the uh, world and, and political world and general assignment, that sort of thing. And, and straight from undergraduate to your master's in history? That's sort of a checkered career, too. I, <laughs> I kept getting these the best. short-term journalism gig offers and I had all my research done for my master's thesis, and I kept postponing it. Okay. I'd write all day, and I didn't feel like writing at night. And finally, eventually I did, so it took a long time to get. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about, you know, your take on the current media environment here in in Montana uh, and beyond. I mean, we're living at such a time of there's a proliferation of sources, but at the same time, people tend to exist in their filter bubbles. Uh, Journalism in general is under pressure from a variety of different dimensions. What's your take of the media landscape right now? Well, nationally, we sure have, you know, you can watch, be a MSNBC watcher, CNN watcher, a a Fox News watcher, and that kind of categorizes it. I don't think we have that in Montana, Mm -hmm. although you can find uh, elements of it around in, in podcasts and so on. Montana is going through a transition right now. We have the traditional sources, the newspapers, the Lee newspapers, the Great Falls Tribune, Bozeman Chronicle, those sort of things, weekly newspapers, which play a critical role in small communities. And, you know, your old uh, AM radio stations, a lot of them don't do much news anymore, but they're, they're starting to. 
the newer and then public radio, which which uh, is is doing a great job and uh, have good public radio stations in Missoula here and one in Billings that between them they fan the state. One of the interesting developments has been the the uh, start of nonprofit online news uh, sources. And full disclosure, I'm on the board of directors of the Montana Free Press. Mm-hmm. It's based in Helena. John Adams is the editor-in-chief. And uh, it's been going for about five years, I think. But it's really been going about three years. And it's just growing uh, for the session. I think they had five reporters, a, an editor in Helena, a part-time editor, and then a business side. The other one is new to Montana as of January, and that's the Daily Montanan, mm-hmm. which is affiliated with a national group of nonprofits that have uh, have nonprofit uh, papers online in a number of states, I think maybe 20 or 25 states. All of these groups uh, had reporters at the legislature or they were uh, Zooming it. I think safe to say there are more reporters in the Capitol or Zooming this past legislative session than ever. And that's a good sign. The more the merrier. And there can be some specialization. Maybe someone's an expert in fish, wildlife, and parks issues, someone on health care, taxes and budget, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So you see a lot of consolidation on sort of the corporate side of media. But this rise of not the nonprofit organizations, what do you think is fueling that? And what else do you think is enabling those those entities to sort of gain share and, and, and sustain themselves financially? Well, some of them surfaced when um, there were cutbacks in Montana in the traditional news mm-hmm. source, uh, sources. Uh, Lee newspapers made a number of cutbacks, reduced number of employees. I was one of them. Um, and... Same with some of the other news organizations. The AP once had like seven, eight, nine people in Helena. Now they have two. Great Falls Tribune, which once was certainly, if not the best, one of the best newspapers in Montana, for the first time since the mid-40s did not have a capital reporter at the legislative session. They had a, they've long had capital coverage. I hope they, they'll change that and get another reporter over there. In some ways, it was a reaction to losing all the coverage that had been there. In other ways, you know, they can do different things where you don't have to worry about selling ads. Mm -hmm. And this is happening around the country. There's a lot of interest in this. Um, Nationally, you know, the New York Times and Washington Post were basically laying off reporters and editors. The Post, until Jeff Bezos bought it. The Times struggled, and then they found a way to sell the Times digitally, and their subscription rates have gone way up. Right. I can read it that in the Post every morning in, in Helena, you know, instead of having a subscription mailed to you, which would take a, a week or looking at the library. So this is there are a lot of changes happening. I don't know where it all ends, but it's, it's very encouraging. And public television is doing more in Montana, too. And then the, my old colleague Mike Dennison is the lead political reporter for Montana Television Network, and he's really up the game there, too. I think Mike is still does a terrific job. So you've got a lot of mixtures, and, and I think people can find news in a lot of places, and a lot of it's free. So let's talk about your experience as a reporter. I mean, 45-plus years covering Montana politics. You've, you've sort of had a front-row seat to so many of the transformational events in Montana history. How would you describe Montana politics? 
Well, we go through cycles. When I started reporting, it was kind of the modern progressive uh, era with an, a new constitution for the state in 1972, reorganizing state government in the executive branch in 1971, major changes in the progressives controlled things, uh, environmental legislation in the early 70s, mm-hmm. 70s, kind of in reaction to the control by the by the Anaconda Company and other mining companies. So then we had the, the, the progressive era, then a conservative era when uh, Reagan became president nationally. And it's kind of gone back and forth. What we're seeing right now is the modern conservative uh, movement for sure. And uh, for the first time in 16 years, there's a Republican co- governor in Greg right. Gianforte. Now, we had mostly Republican legislatures over those 16 years, and the the two governors, uh, Brian Schweitzer and Steve Bullock, vetoed a lot of these bills that passed this year and are very controversial. So the big question to me is whether, you know, the, the modern Republican boom is sort of a uh, spinoff on Trump's popularity in Montana or not, and we'll see that in 22 and 24, whether it's an aberration or whether Montana is, in fact, joining Idaho, Wyoming, and the Dakotas as a red state. Yeah, I mean, what are some of the forces you think are driving that? We hear a lot in Montana about urban-rural divide, for example. What are some of the the factors that you think contributed to these cycles? Well, a big one was the loss of uh, union jobs in the mining industry Mm -hmm. and the smelting and refinery industry. Right now, I think over half the union jobs in Montana are are people you might call white-collar workers, teachers, professors, state and local government employees. So the so-called blue-collar unions are really shrinking. We don't have many sawmills open anymore. We don't have many mines open anymore. A lot of the timber jobs, uh, logging jobs are gone. That's hurt the, the Democratic Party in Montana. We've also seen demographic changes uh, a lot of the rural areas that occasionally elected Democrats to the legislature don't anymore. Mm-hmm. Democrats do not seem to be able to appeal to a lot of rural areas. Used to be kind of a labor farm coalition with the Montana Farmers Union playing a big role in that with the Montana AFL-CIO. That's sort of uh, died, but maybe coming back, you know, uh, Governor Schweitzer's brother, Walter, is now the head of the Montana Farmers Union, and he's trying to rebuild that group with the help of his members. The other thing is the the demographic trends. We've got Western Montra- Montana just growing like topsy. And uh, a lot of the places, in aside from Billings, which is growing, but a lot of the places in Eastern Montana are shrinking. Mm-hmm. So how that works, I don't know. But um, we'll see some of it with the new redistricting and apportionment commission that'll start working this year, first to pick the districts for two congressional seats. It's very interesting that Montana has regained its second congressional seat. We're the first state in in the history of this country to gain a seat after we've lost one. Oh, interesting. So we lost our seat, what, in 1990-something? Yep. And just regained it this cycle. What's your take on that process? How are things going? Well, they haven't been able able to really do much until they get the county-by-county numbers. I don't think those are coming out until August or September. Mm Mm-hmm. So the big question is, well, how do you divide Montana into two? Traditionally, east and west, and the the west was traditionally held by a Democrat, the east by a Republican. But like I said, the growth has been in the west mostly. So how do you do that? 
There have been some proposals online to do it north-south. You know, you have to protect the Indian uh, reservations. That's a critical component. Mm -hmm. Most of them vote democratically pretty heavily. heavily. I don't know what they'll do. There are going to be a lot of arguments for keeping counties that traditionally were in the western district in the west if they go the east-west route. One of the most interesting counties is Gallatin, where Bozeman is, and it's really grown. Yeah. I don't remember all the stats, but a, a few years ago they were the, I think the second largest growing county in the in the country. I think you're right. Yeah, and and Gallatin County has gone from a mostly, they would elect some Democrats to the legislature, but always a reliable county for Republicans. Just the opposite now. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a Democratic district. They were one of the few few counties in Montana to vote for Hillary Clinton for president in uh, 2016. So and uh, still they elect within the city of Bozeman a lot all Democrats and in the rural areas, I believe all Republicans. So there's that split there. Yeah, I want to shift gears just a little bit. You know, if we look back on the 2020 election in particular, you heard you know candidates of all stripes talking about Montana values, you know, espousing their Montana values. So everybody's saying Montana values. But it seems like they're talking about different things. So, you know, what is the rhetoric and what is actually, uh, uh, in your experience, what are the sort of, are there a set of Montana values that unite um, folks in some way? Well, I think they used to be education, college education and K through 12. I think that, that they wanted people to be able to afford to live here. That's in jeopardy now, I think. The education, uh, I think we've got a history of not funding education very well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people want health care. As much as Republicans denounce Medicaid expansion, or some Republicans do, I think Medicaid expansion has saved rural hospitals in Montana, yeah. which were in grave danger of going under. And now doctors and hospitals get paid for their services. So what the current Montana values are, I don't know. I think people want a good future for their young people, but a lot of the young people head off to Seattle and Portland and Denver for careers. Uh, in my generation, a lot of them have come back. You know, they, they want to raise their family in Montana. So I don't, I don't, that's a really good question. What are the values we, we value in Montana? And I don't know. It seems like it's, can be used as code for something, you know, whether it's a certain type of values or whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a phrase that everybody says, and it's not quite, quite clear what it means. Yeah. I mean, is it Republicans who want government off people's back? Mm-hmm. But they do want the COVID relief, you know. Democrats want jobs, good-paying jobs, and union jobs. It would be a really interesting series of shows just to look at, well, what are the values you bring? Is it lower taxes? Is it more, you know, more government services? Montana's one of the very few states in the country that doesn't have pre-K education. Right. Bullock brought in a uh, lady who headed the program in Alabama, and she told us that it's popular cross-party lines that the legislature had just given them like 60 million more for the next year. So that, I mean, they were pouring money into it. The, the, apparently, the, from what I've read, the evidence is pretty overwhelming. It, it, it pays, it's big bang for the buck. We can't seem to do that in Montana. Yeah. And I mean, that seems like when we're talking about values, that would seem like an area where 
you can start to build productive collaboration around you. We all care about our children and we want to create a future for our children. Yeah, we might have some debate about what that future should look like, but early childhood education seems like a great place to start. I think fair to say we don't, we, the state does not do a great job of funding K through 12. We have the lowest teacher pay in the region, if not nationally, one of the lowest. Our universities are terribly underfunded, as you, you well know. Mm-hmm. We're behind in a lot of categories, and it's hard to make it up all up in one fell swoop, but we need to start doing something like that, in my opinion. You, ma- you mentioned some of the factors that are shifting in Montana's economy, you know, the decline of the extraction industry and the rise of the tech sector particularly in Bozeman here in, in Missoula as well. I mean, what do you think the role is of, of, of that industry as we move forward, and how does that cut across the political dimensions? Well, I think it's very promising. Do we do enough here compared to other states? I don't know the answer mm-hmm. to that. As I understand it, Greg Gianforte and his wife started Right Now Technologies in their garage or basement right. and eventually employed, I think, seven or 800, six or 700 people average pay $90,000. Another business is, is down there is one that is called Zoot Enterprises out at Four Corners. Same kind of story, you know. And they were in these little hotel cabins, motel cabins outside of Bozeman. Now they have a giant building in, uh, at Four Corners. So there, there's a lot of promise there, I think. The question is to me, well, what do our universities and and schools need to do per, per, to prepare people to work in these businesses? Do we do enough? I don't I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we don't do enough, but I think we're trying. I know that a lot is happening at both UM and MSU in those domains. And I think we have to because, you know, we got the a lot of influx of of employers. And they need talent. They tell us we need people that can do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And, you know, we, we need to do a better job filling that demand. Well, one example, too, is the state has had a program to give um, tax incentives to filmmakers here. Mm-hmm. And they've used that money. There, there are a number of television shows and movies, and they wanted more, and they didn't get this from that amount from the last legislative session. So that seems to me to hold promise. There are a lot of critics of it saying, why give why give money to a film industry that's rolling in money? But I don't think that's ca- the case with all of them. And a lot of the independent filmmakers certainly aren't. Yeah, I mean, you see the Yellowstone production, the Kevin Cosner production that, um, you know, for a while they were sort of headquartered here in Missoula. And you just see the, the number of people employed in that enterprise. So it's a lot of jobs. How durable those jobs are is, is sort of unclear, but it's a lot of people working, and um, you know, money in that space is certainly an opportunity. Well, we have the beautiful landscape, the rivers, the mountains, the prairies. I personally think we should, we should do all we can to invest in that because I think there will always be demand. We'll be back to our conversation with legendary Montana politics reporter Chuck Johnson after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hi, this is Sheila Stearns, Commissioner Emerita of the Montana University System and former president of the University of Montana. You are listening to one of my favorite podcasts, A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm here with journalist Chuck Johnson, reflecting on his over 45 years covering Montana politics. 
So let's pull the lens back a little bit. I mean, we mentioned at the onset you studied history as, as a as a master's student here. I mean, and, and that's one thing that's been noteworthy in your reporting. And not only have you covered such a long span of Montana uh, politics, but also you know, infusing your reporting with a historical perspective. In a world where our news cycle is, you know, minutes or, you know, 140 characters long, uh, you know, how, do you, how important do you think it is for, for readers and consumers of media to sort of understand where we, where we sit historically? I think it's critical. And, uh, you know, there's some really good history books and some good history professors. I always like to see them in stories where appropriate. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it does go in cycles. When I was 23 years old, I got to cover the 1972 Constitutional Convention. You know, they did a couple things that were, were pretty interesting. One, Democrats had a big majority, but they agreed to sit in alphabetical order. Hmm. A through Z, not the Democrats on one side of the aisle, the Republicans on the other. I wrote a number of – couple of columns about why doesn't the legislature do that? No one ever took me up on I still think it's a great idea. It is. I mean, and it seems so antithetical to the sensibilities right now. I mean, the other side is the enemy. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe we need an initiative to do that or something like that yeah. because I think it forced them to work together. And they didn't always agree, but, you know – in the end, uh, they all signed the Constitution as proposed. Nine other ten of the hundred have ultimately came out against it, but the vast majority were for it. Mm -hmm. So it's it's this it's this question of how do we get people to work together despite their um, sharp political differences. Yeah, I mean, what in what in your in your view and experience, what have been those things that have been able to? break those issues or topics that have been able to break through and get people working together productively in good faith? We have t two sharply divided political parties that, you know, their business is not to work with the other, at least at the organizational level. But one of the more interesting things I covered as a, as a legislative reporter was the uh, moderate formation of moderate Republicans starting in 2011, 2013, and they were able to work with Democrats to th get things passed uh, on education, that sort of thing. I thought that was encouraging, and and it would be encouraging if if the D's could work with the R's too on some things. They're not not going to agree on everything, but I think there's some things they can agree on. Yeah, you know, the, whether it's agreement or not, just the sort of assumption of bad faith in the other side. It just seems super toxic to me, and quite destructive. And then it seems like you've got. Both parties that seemingly more and more unmoored from actual political ideologies in a way. Yeah. It's, it's it's not so much about, hey, we believe that the role of government is X or Y. It's that we believe that we just need to win at whatever Yeah, it's cost. all about winning. And, you know, we have a state legislature that meets for 90 days every two years. Yeah. You know, it's it's absurd in, in this time that the, that the – you can't imagine, be like a business, uh, a corporation board of directors meeting every other year for 90 days. I mean, things change so fast. There are federal decisions, uh, laws, court decisions they have to adjust for. And so we have a, a part-time legislature that, you know, we don't want we don't want professionals, but do we want all these amateurs is the question. I mean, uh, I think if we had an annual session that maybe met 45 or 50 days a year, they'd be much more responsive to ongoing problems and be able to address them. Yeah, and not in the middle of the winter when it's the hardest, <laughs> hard to get to Helena and, and all of that. 
interesting this session with the Zoom. Sure. And people, you know, from Glasgow and Libby and Glendive could get on there and, and make their feelings known. That's the first time that's happened. Mm-hmm. And I think it's promising because, you know, if someone really feels strong about an issue, it means hopping in the car, driving two or 300 miles on icy roads and getting there and then good luck finding a parking spot anywhere near the Capitol. Yeah. So the Zoom, to me, holds some promise for people to testify on the legislature. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit more about that in terms of public engagement in the process, access to information. I know we have Montana's open meeting laws, and there's been you know, a range of compliance for that at the legislative level. You, know, you didn't cover this past legislative session, um, but you know, what do you think are the the stories that 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 weren't covered that should be or you know what what do you what were the questions that you maybe thought weren't answered adequately well i think one of the big stories that will emerge from the session and it, it was quite well covered i think was the uh legislature and and executives battle against the, the judiciary mm. and the, the consequences of that and uh you know the judiciary we choose to elect judges here yeah Many of them are county attorneys before they're judges, so they run as a partisan label for county attorneys. So they are they are run as nonprofit people, but they have partisan backgrounds for the most part. And if there's a, if someone resigns, the governor appoints them based on the nominees screened by the judicial nomination commission. So I think there is a semblance of some screening that that's eliminated. Now the governor there's an opening in. Great Falls for a judge, a district judge. So he's got a committee to screen. So we'll see how that works. Too early to tell. But access to information, you know, we've had, we've got strong right to know laws. I was on the board of directors for about 25 years for the Montana FOI hotline, Freedom of Press hotline. The big problem, just as is with the federal government, is getting, you can put in for an FOI request with an agency. There's no time limit. There is, uh, you know, can take years. They can redact parts of the things. One interesting development this time was the legislature wanted the emails of the administrator of the Supreme Court, the director of the Department of Administration, got him over a weekend. That's unheard of. I hope that future requests from reporters as well as the public will go that fast. I know they won't. So... You know, we we do have a commitment in our Constitution for openness. The public has a right to inspect documents, attend meetings, unless the right to individual privacy exceeds the advantages of public disclosure. We sued, uh, oh, in the late 90s to get into legislative caucuses. I tell people we kind of won the battle, but we lost the war. They They now find ways to meet off campus or meet in groups of five, you know, that sort of thing. Yep. But I still think it was valuable to do. And uh, so we do have a pretty strong language in the Constitution to do those sort of things, but sometimes the execution isn't that great. And uh, a lot of work to be done there. Indeed. So, Chuck, as we close here, you know, you're a few years into retirement. Uh, what are the things that are exciting you about this next phase of, of life for you? Well, we've done some traveling. We went to China a couple years ago. We're hoping to do some traveling this summer when things settle down. I've been uh, taking some Molly courses. Hmm, Wonderful. And auditing some classes at Carroll College. Um, Still interested. I was on the Historical Society board. Wasn't reappointed, which is fine. 
and we we all worked with a lot of people and we played a small role in helping get uh, funding for the new museum to be approved in 2017, I guess. So I'm interested in history. I'm interested in, you know, the arts, interested in libraries, that sort of thing. Very, very loyal supporter of the University of Montana. Mm-hmm. We appreciate it. Yeah, it's a great place. And uh, gosh, I hope it can pu- pull its numbers up and uh, uh, stop the funding cuts. Those are very, very divisive and I hope unnecessary in the future. Well, it's been great sort of learning more about your perspective, your the sensibility you brought to reporting. And you know, thanks for your years of service and shining a light on so many of the things we as Montanans need to know. Thanks a lot, Justin. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. A.J. Williams is our producer, BTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.